All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Uh, our next guest comes bearing not one, but two miracles, so that's fun for everybody. Uh, you guys have seen him before. He's even uh, co-hosted the show once. James Thompson was a just Democrat. He's now running for uh, judge in Kansas. So, And, and you're going to see there's a couple of amazing parts of the story. He's a judicial candidate in Division 25, 18th Judicial Dis District of Kansas. Uh, Jim, welcome back to Young Turks. How you doing? I'm doing great, Jane. Thank you, so, thank you so much for having me back on. I really appreciate it. Um, things are going well here. Looking forward to the next month. Yeah, so miracle number two is how you got on that ballot in the first place, and I think it's an amazing <laughs> story, and I and I wanted to share with the audience. But let's talk about the first uh, uh, good piece of good news. So last we talked to you, you were struggling with cancer, and your provider uh, was not uh, allowing you to get surgery in Denver because it was out of network, uh, surgery that could have saved your life. So what wound up happening with that? Uh, it really was an amazing story. We were lucky enough to have a really good uh, insurance commissioner here. Uh, she gave me a call and um, asked that I let her know kind of what was going on because I put it out on Facebook that my insurance carrier had denied me going to see this specialist in Denver and kept referring me back to general oncologist here. And even though I kept telling him, no, look, you know, I need this specialist, this person that deals in my kind of cancer. Well, um, Vicki Schmidt, who's our insurance commissioner and Republican, um, said that, well, look, that's not right. And they started talking to whoever. And within a matter of days of the insurance commissioner getting involved, um, they reversed course. So now, of course, that, you know, it took six months for us to get to that point where you know, I went round and round. I went to the doctor that they asked me to go to. Um, wasn't getting the care that I needed, et cetera. Um, and I needed a surgery that was going to cost about $250,000. And um, thankfully, we were able to get to Denver last February. I had the surgery and um, I am doing worlds better now. I, you know, I thought it was going to be uh, down and out pretty much um, <laughs> for the rest of my life. And after surgery, I began feeling so much better and Things are really looking up now, and I'll, I'll see my three-year-old walk down the aisle someday is what I'm told. So. Yeah. Look, Jim, I, I've lost good friends to cancer, so you scared the hell out of me uh, when, uh, when that situation was happening. And look, uh, two quick things out of that. One is, look, honestly, I beat up Republicans uh, all the time, and I think they originally deserve it. So it's actually great to hear a story of a Republican doing the right thing in, in that case and helping you out helping a fellow human being out. So it's it's actually refreshing, wonderful to hear those stories. But but Jim, you shouldn't have to have someone step in for you to help you out. We should just help you because you're sick, right? That is what I believe. Yes, I believe that we should be able to get the care that we need, that everybody in this country, regardless of race, religion, you know, prosperity level, should be able to get the care that they need. And um, you know, unfortunately, that's not the system that we have. I am fortunate and privileged enough to you know, have had somebody that was on my side. I was privileged enough to end up with good insurance through my wife's employer um, and able to get the care that I needed. But that does not happen for a lot of people around the country. Yeah, and we can't let people with cancer sit around for six months uh, hoping that the insurance commissioner does the right thing and you find a decent person in government to help you. 
we got to have insurance for everyone. It's got to be universal. And, 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 and James Thompson fought for that when he was a, a congressional candidate as well. But now let's talk about uh, your uh, latest run. So you did one of the most miraculous write-in ballot campaigns I've ever seen. So first, take <laughs> us back to why you had to do a write-in in the first place. Well, the the timeline for filing to run for judge is June 1st. And I had briefly considered it, um, but decided I needed you know a little bit more time to heal from my surgery, and I wanted to make sure that my health was going to be okay. Well, t- about two months later, when the advanced ballots came out for the August primary, uh, August 4th primary, um, women on the Sedgwick County Democratic Women's site started talking about candidates that they wanted to write in. And I started getting tagged in these conversations on Facebook, and um, I went on there and kind of read through everything, and then they said, well, you know, if we write you in and you get accepted, or you get the nomination, would you accept the nomination? And I said, yeah, I I would be honored to accept the nomination, Um, but we've got a long way to go to get to that point, and if we're going to do that, then let's do this right. And so, um, again... (laughs) The advanced ballots had already came out. They came out the day before this. And my wife had already sent her advanced ballot in. So she didn't even know that this was going to happen. We had you know, talked about me running before, but uh, we didn't know that this was going to happen. So in that two-week time period that we had between that Friday that I decided on and then the Tuesday, um, two weeks from then, uh, for the August 4th primary, we had to organize a write-in campaign to get at least 5,000 votes. And it uh, has never been done. It's, it's never been done in Kansas to our knowledge that somebody was able to do a write-in campaign for a judicial office here. And because of the congressional campaigns and, you know, and all the wonderful people that followed me through Justice Democrats, brand new Congress, um, you know, our revolution, all of these wonderful organizations that had kind of stepped up during the congressional campaign, they started pushing out this information and just flooded social media here with uh, the information about writing in James Thompson. And my former campaign manager, God bless her, Rhonda Cox, jumped in. We got the advanced ballot information, who all had requested advanced ballots, and we started sending out texts. We did a texting campaign, social media campaign, and then robocalls. And with the two weeks, we were able to get 5,294 votes. (laughs) So it was... It was pretty amazing. Jim, this is the longest, most convoluted story uh, I've ever seen <laughs> for explaining why your wife didn't vote for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it is funny. Um, hopefully she'll vote for me in November, but uh, you know, she, she had some choice words for me, uh, you know, about that, but she had literally sent in the advance ballot the night before. So, um, right. Yeah, she didn't get a chance to even write my name in for the August primary. <laughs> right. So seriously, though, Jim, um, it really is an amazing story for people who don't know um, this level of detail in politics. And there's no reason you would. Uh, let me tell you, as someone who's covered politics for a quarter of a century, getting over 5,000 uh, write-in votes anywhere, let alone in the middle of Kansas, is just near impossible. It's it's I couldn't believe it when you told me that. That's <laughs> wow. And so because guys, it's hard to get five thousand votes, period, let alone five thousand people to actually write you in. That is Herculean effort. But but 
to me, my I think my takeaway from that, but you know it better, is that if you do the hard work of organizing, which you did running for Congress a couple of times, it actually sets you up for success down the road because you had built that base of people who already knew you and loved you. Is that the, the main takeaway from this? It really is. You know, the 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 people here in, in Wichita, when I ran in 2017, really got motivated. They felt like they, you know, they weren't alone here. And so we had just a really solid base of support within Sedgwick County and within the 4th District. And so when it came time um, for them to be able to vote for me on something else, um, they really came together. And, and you, a lot of the people that had worked on my campaigns were, have gone off and are either in office now or um, are working on other people's campaigns. So it was really amazing to see all of that support come together. It was very humbling for me, and um, it was a pretty special time. And, and I, I can't thank everybody enough, particularly Rhonda Cox and Becky Jenick, who uh, were my treasurer and campaign manager and really helped push that over the top and really get everybody organized. And by the way, the website is votejamesthompson.com, so uh, m make sure you check it out because it's just an amazing story. But you, you got to finish the story. you got to win, right? And then it <laughs> makes it even better. Uh, and so just time for, for one more question here. Um, so it, it's really more of a point. That I, I'm not sure I've ever seen a campaign more people-powered. You know, sometimes people are – are genuinely people powered. I think the AOC campaign was, the Cory Bush campaign was, Jamal Bowman, et cetera. Um, and, and a lot of times people fake the people power. Oh, golly gee, did they draft me? Right. And they'll even do AstroTurf things to draft. But they really drafted you almost out of a hospital bed. <laughs> right? And you like, it's almost like you took the robe off and you put on maybe another robe, right? Yeah. <laughs> the off Taking off the hospital robe. Yeah. Hey, I might actually do that for a TikTok commercial later now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, look, I know you and I know how wonderful and decent you are, but, but th doesn't that connect you a little bit more even uh, to your own voters and constituents and the people you represent? Because my God, if, if ever they put anyone in office, it would be you. It really does. You know, the, the people here are just really wonderful people. And, you know, we, we talk about getting out and being active. Um, you know, one of the things that Ruth Bader Ginsburg said at one point was that um, fight for the things that you care about. And so the people here, you know, have learned that sitting on the sidelines just isn't enough. If you want people that you believe in to be in office, then you've got to get out there and you've got to work for it. And that means from judge to you know, Congress to any other elected position, you've got to get out and you've got to work and you've got to believe in what you're doing. So if you believe in justice, if you, justice, if you believe in equality, if you believe in the things that um, are going to provide a better life for people, then they're going to respond and they're going to step up and they're going to help you in your time of need. So it's been on a pretty, pretty amazing ride. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate everybody. But like you said, we still have time to go. We still got to finish that last part of the race, which means we've got to get out there, distribute those signs. We've got to raise money at votejamestompson.com. And we've got to get out and do the things that we need to do to finish this off. It, it's one thing to get nominated, but it's another thing to get elected and we need to finish it. All right. Uh, James Thompson, 18th Judicial District of Kansas, uh, votejamesthompson.com. And I can see now, actually, they're doing it a lot on Instagram. Uh, so, Jim, I can see you doing it. Where you, What they do is they you take the hospital robe off, 
And then as soon as you do, you do they do a cut and you've got the judge's robe on. So I'm waiting for it. I'm going to check TikTok every day until you put it on, okay? <laughs> we'll be putting it out there. I'll send it to you so you can, you know, you can get your laugh out of it. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Great to see you again. Good luck in the race. Hey, thanks, Jane. All right. Back on the conversation. We've got a really uh, interesting guest for you guys, Tara Palmieri. Uh, she was a White House correspondent for ABC News. She worked at Politico. She's got a new podcast, Broken, Seeking Justice. Uh, and uh, they talk about the Jeffrey Epstein case there. So obviously super interesting. Tara, uh, first of all, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So uh, on the Epstein case, there's so many things to talk about. And um, I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about how he avoided justice for so long and, and what you think might have happened to him. There's uh, his girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, Trump's reaction to it. But let me start uh, at the personal level uh, for Epstein and and his associates. So how did they um, set this operation up in the first place uh, before we get to how they got away with it? It was basically a pyramid scheme, uh, recruiting driven. You bring one girl, I'll give you $200. Um, that person is incentivized to bring more girls. So um, he had, you know, hundreds of women three times a day, but they're not women, they're children. They're tweens and teens, 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds. I mean, he said the younger, the better. And so he incentivized these teenagers who most of them came from poor backgrounds to bring their friends to him and they would make money by referring a friend. Um, then he had these adult women, you know, in their late teens, early 20s, and then Ghislaine Maxwell, a actual you know, woman um, working out of her own volition to manage all these teens that were coming in and out of the house. She went out and looked, she, she sought them. She looked for them. She pretended to be a recruiter for uh, Victoria's Secret. It was all about getting the girls in the house. And once they were in the house, they made it feel very normal. And the recruiter or Ghislaine or whoever brought them there would walk them up to Jeffrey Epstein's room. And that is where the assault would happen. Um, but it wasn't just Jeffrey Epstein. So many of the victims tell me that his friends also abused them and assaulted them. And, um, you know, this is this was a really huge, sprawling, complex web that not only included the girls that recruited some of them victims as well um, and the bookers who managed these people, Jeffrey Epstein's assistants, but, you know, the uh, the chefs who fed the girls, the butlers who drove them around, um, you know, the, sh the pilot who flew everyone around on Lolita Express, flying around teenage girls and adults. I mean, there are so many people that just kind of turned a blind eye. And that's a really big part of this episode, this season of Broken Seeking Justice is talking to those people who are out there hiding, don't want any association with Jeffrey Epstein, yet saw so much. And I was shocked to find out how often you know, the FBI hadn't actually spoken to those people. Um, I can give you one story. When I was traveling around with Virginia Roberts Dufresne, you probably know her. She's the girl in the picture, the 17-year-old in the picture with Prince Andrew. She said she was assaulted by Prince Andrew, Alan Dershowitz, um, Bill Richardson, a number of Jeffrey Epstein's friends. She, we actually ended up going to the house of his, of his uh, longtime butler, Juan Alessi, of 10 years, 1991 to, I think, 2001. He worked for him. And he'd never spoken to the press. Virginia and I, uh, we we buzz into his compound, this complex, this kind of you know golf course thing in uh, Southern California, uh, Southern Florida, near Palm Beach, and he lets us into the house and he talks to us and he says, "I'm so sorry, Virginia. I'm so sorry. I didn't do anything. I didn't know. I didn't know." But then talks about all 
came in, all the teenagers he drove around. It's very, very complicated. Um, you know, kind of really delves into this idea of morality and when should people say enough is enough, call the police, do something about it. Um, and while we're there, we find out from Juan that the FBI showed up before we arrived. And then he hadn't heard from them since Jeffrey Epstein died. Okay, so this is almost like seven or eight months later. Actually, probably longer, maybe 10 months. And then while we're there, the FBI calls and you could hear it in the podcast. They're talking to Juan. They're telling him, like, we want to talk to you. And then Virginia Dufresne Roberts, her phone, hours later, explodes. The battery explodes. It turns black. The screen. I had to get her a new phone, like help her get a new phone, obviously. And it was just kind of this crazy experience where I'm like, are we being followed? Are they geopinging her phone? And that's why the battery exploded, because apparently when they do that, it um, uses up battery life. And it just kind of remind you, reminded you, like, there are so many people out there who know so much about Jeffrey Epstein and the abuse and what happened. And they do not want the story to come out. And everyone else thinks it's over and it's been told, but it really hasn't. So, Tara, you're saying amazing things. Um, let, let's focus for one second on what people knew. Because, mm -hmm. okay, there's the butler and the pilot. And, you know, I, their level of culpability is interesting. Uh, but then there's the other players that are much larger. So when you said Bill Richardson, I remembered that for... Decades, I had heard in Democratic circles that Bill Richardson could not be VP and could not run for president uh, because he had skeletons in his closet. So everybody knew, and and so I didn't know, and I, I'm I always assumed that they weren't. That I'm like, oh, what do you know? I, I don't know that you know that, right? Uh, and I, mm -hmm. on the other hand, I used to think that about Larry Craig when people would say, oh, there's a Republican senator. Uh, propositioning young men in men's bathrooms in Union Station. I'm like, oh, that's crazy. There's that's no way that's happening. And it turns out it, it was happening. It was Larry. Craig. Yeah, but this is different. This is different because it was just the flow, the hundred, the number of women all with the same story. I mean, it was just neighbors complained in Palm Beach that there were girls coming to the house all the time in yellow cabs. Like this was not something that was done in private. This was out in the open. The girls would walk around naked. That's what Virginia told us and others. Um, it was not hidden. This is like this was in plain no, no, sight. No question. No question. So at this yeah. point, obviously, we, we know that part of the story. But how many people in power knew uh, the people that were involved, whether it was Bill Richardson, whether it was Bill Clinton, like Bill Clinton went on the Lolita Express. Right. Did he know it was the Lolita Express? Um, and Donald Trump literally said uh, oh, Jeffrey and I uh, share a common, something along these lines, I'm paraphrasing, common bond where we both like women, but he likes them really young. Like, so did every, did Trump and Clinton and all these folks, did they all know that he was molesting young girls? I don't know for a fact, but I have to think that based on what I've reported and what I've learned, that everything was really out in the open and it would take a lot of self-denial to not uh, see what you we're seeing before your very eyes. Um, so that's on them. I mean, the personal responsibility, what they saw, what they didn't, I, I don't actually know that for a fact. I do know that Virginia Roberts and others have said that they have been, that they were abused and assaulted by his friends and they named them. So, you know, if you don't believe them, that was part of my mission also as a journalist was to find cooperating evidence. It's, that's the sad thing about this story. It's one woman against a very powerful man, women that you don't know. And it's their word versus their, you know, it's her word versus theirs. Like Virginia Roberts goes on TV. She talks about how Prince Andrew assaulted her. She doesn't, 
put herself behind, uh, you know, uh, I guess like a, a black screen or change the, the, her voice. She's out there saying, this is me and this is what happened to me. And then you have this, this prince from one of the most storied institutions in the world saying she's a liar. She's a liar. She's like, I've never met this woman. There's a picture out there. I've never met this woman. Um, so for me as a um, journalist, I, it was, it was, I felt it was my duty to try to find the evidence to back this up. I mean, it, it really is a he said, she said. So Tara, um, I, I guess one of the questions I have is, is this um, something that um, people just powerful and rich people knew each other and, and, it, it word got around that if you like young girls, you go to Jeffrey Epstein, uh, or was this more organized? Did it have a purpose? Was it a you know a ring of some sorts? Um, and I don't know that we have enough information yet, but obviously you're doing podcasts about it, so you know a lot more than I do. So, is what information do we have on how organized it was, and if it was if Epstein wanted those powerful people to be involved in this? Or if it was, for lack of a better word on this horrific situation, recreational? Well, here's what we do know. When the FBI raided Epstein's home, this is something I know from witnesses and victims, he had um, cameras everywhere in the house, okay? So if things were happening, they were likely being recorded. He asked some of the victims, including Virginia Roberts, to give him details about the men that that he trafficked her to. It seems to me that this kind of information would be valuable, right? Especially if you're trying to do business, blackmail, et cetera. Seems like a lot of it was driven by that. Um, maybe it was a sort of club, you know? But to me, from what I've learned, it, that, it was that a lot of people really knew about it and just looked the other way. And, um, you know, said maybe it's this, maybe it's that, when it was staring them right in the face. Um, and... You know, the Jeffrey Epstein story is a sad one because he did serve time. 2008, he became a registered sex offender. He procured a child for prostitution. That's what they called it, as if a child could be a prostitute. And yet afterwards, when he returned to New York and Palm Beach and all these other places, he was embraced by society. It didn't matter because he was so rich. I mean, yeah, he had a party thrown for him by Peggy Siegel. And uh, who's a Hollywood power broker with Prince Andrew, attended by Katie Couric, George Stephanopoulos, Chelsea Handler, um, you know, doctors. Uh, Bill, Bill Gates is taking meetings with him. He's giving money to Harvard. Deutsche Bank is using his money. Uh, MIT. He was able to waltz back into society as a registered sex offender. I mean, what does that tell you about our society? Jeff yeah. Epstein is a poison in it, but clearly we allow that. To exist. Tara, no, that's such a devastatingly good point. Uh, and it really, the, part of the sickness, obviously, is the uh, child sex ring, these, uh, you know, and the molestation and rape, etc. But the other part of the sickness is is the just blinded by greed. As long as he has money, they're like, oh, you're, you're a registered sex offender who, at a bare minimum, molested 13, 14 year old girls. Oh, but you've got money. Let's throw a party. God damn it. I just, it's just revolting yeah. uh, to think about. But we got to have you back on because we're out of time, but there's so many other things that I want to yeah. ask about the case. 
So everybody check okay. out the podcast, Broken, Seeking Justice. Uh, Tara Palmieri, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks. Thanks for having me.